Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your co-host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other co-host, Susan Fox. And with us today is E.J. de la Pena. Now, let me give you a little um, description of who EJ is. He is a um, he is an American. I think that's it right there. That's what he's <laughs> he is indescribable. Yeah, yeah. He does have an IMDb bio, and we're by gosh going to read it. EJ De La Pena <laughs> is an American filmmaker and CEO of entertainment production company Cowboy Aaron. EJ was one of the youngest members of the Screen Actors Guild the age of four, and has worked with various legends of film, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, George Clooney, Walter Koenig, and Julia Roberts. EJ is a creator and executive producer for multiple film and television projects, including Nobility the Series, which premiered at Stan Lee's Kamikaze. An avid humanitarian, EJ uses his projects to motivate and support philanthropic efforts in the sectors of medical research green technology, and education. And that is the IMDP page. <laughs> and it doesn't well, describe... Like that, I actually sound you know, like a halfway decent human being. And, yeah. and he is the life of the party at any convention he's at. He's just like the jolliest person you know. Well, you know, and it's you're, you're great to be on panels with. You and I, were we on one panel together or two? Two. We were oh, on we're two on of two. them. Yeah. At, uh, we yeah, were... We, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We were at Loscon uh, 44, and um, yes. yeah, and it's talking about science fiction and and what was the other one we were on? We, we uh, were we on. Had, it, it was one was talking about like the future of tech and like whether or not <laughs> humanity will be able to handle it, and that's the one we ended up just talking about. We're talking cell about people giving out cell to the poor the entire thing. Oh yes, <laughs> I and. Uh, um, I just, I have no idea why we even had a panel about cell phones. I mean, it's basically the guy who, <laughs> who's, who, uh, wanted to do the panel, uh, just his, his whole reason for doing it was because he was having, uh, future shock because of his cell phone. I guess. Yeah, and well, he wanted to rent. And then the audience jumped in, and 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 they they became panelists too, which was always fun when that happens. <laughs> and then suddenly the whole you've spent the whole hour talking about cell phones, and you, well, nobody can tech. get a word. Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, if, we didn't get tech, any. Not, 
you yeah. know, 100 years from now or 50 years from now. Well, and it doesn't have a lot. I mean, uh, the panelists brought up a few good points, and and um, the audience did too. Actually, uh, there is, mm. there are age barriers, there are financial barriers to the acceptance of technology. Uh, we, as science fiction fans, tend to live in a bubble. We think that everybody has access to technology, and they don't. Uh, and we think of ourselves as being fairly on top of things or, or fairly normal, I guess. So uh, everything we touch, we say, oh, yeah, we know how to do this. This is not a shock to us. This is not uh, a societal pressure or an evolutionary pressure because it feels normal to us. And and somehow that point never got made during the panel. Well, we, we, there's that, and we got so tied up in where we are at present that rather than – because cell phones are a great launching pad for where we're going. I mean, think about like the AI and Siri or the, um, uh, the GPS or even just with the triangulation of the cell phone towers, how you're constantly being tracked now. Mm-hmm. Like Google will track you wherever you are going – and send your data, whether you have the GPS on or not, send your data back to home base and, or to their home base. And, you know, so, so what that means for our, uh, you know, privacy rights and when AI, like w- what direction AI is going to be going and, and where this is all evolving to. But we never quite got past, well, not every single person in the world fully understands cell phones and, you know, there's the age gap and, well, you know, some older folks just pick up on cell phones. Great. And then you've got, you know, other folks who uh, are res- more resistant to technology and all that. And those are great discussions to have, not what the panel was supposed to be about. <laughs> right, right. So uh, you have been you just got done making Nobility the series. It's been actually in the can for a few months now. It's been yeah, a- well, we released uh, we released it on Amazon actually back in June. Mm-hmm. So and now it's um, I'm pretty sure it's December. Yes. Yeah. Last uh-huh. time I checked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now we're I waiting for more episodes, but those people are all doing other things. How dare they? I how dare they? My goodness, how dare phenomenal actors! get to do other projects without me. Come on. Shoot, shoot, if you shoot. if you uh if you had to reassemble that cast to do another series of four, could you do it? Um with well like with anything where you're putting it together, like we shot it back in twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean there's some folks that um you know it would be difficult to get back depending on their schedules, what have you. Would we be able to bring enough of them together in order to move forward and progress the story? Yes. Um, would we necessarily have every single cast member back? Possibly not. Yeah, probably not. I'm, I, w- I would. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because you can't. You have no idea what their contracts are, where they're, how long they're going to be, and you know, it's like, like trying to decide where to go for Chinese. <laughs> you know, you have a. Good like you get a group song. of fans and you get six of them in a room and you cannot get a conclusion on where they're going to eat. I just <laughs> gave up and said, I'm going here. 
You guys follow or don't. And I hardly ever end up alone. It's like you could take all the science fiction fans in the world and lay them end to end, and they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. But a bump. (laughs) The universe is infinite. The multiverse is even more infinite. Because wibbly wobbly tiny whiny. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Now with twenty percent more infinity. Wait, what? More infinity. One hundred percent more infinity. That doesn't make any sense. Wibbly wobbly tiny whiny. Go have fun. (laughs) That's the only show that would ever work. Oh my gosh. Um, like. Uh, I did a panel at Kamikaze this year. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Stanley's Los Angeles Comic Con, mm-hmm. formerly known as Kamikaze. It's like the prince of the con world. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, anywho, it, no, it's a fun con. Uh, been going there for years. And uh, this year we did a panel about uh, what was called How to Be a God. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm totally qualified mm-hmm. to talk on such things. Uh, <laughs> No, it was uh, it was about world creation, where you are you are kind of a, a, the god of your mm-hmm. own, you know, story that you're creating and the world you're creating for your story, and you know we had a great group of folks um, like David Gerald, who you know everyone knows from uh, Troubles of Tribbles for the original Star Trek episode, original series, original TOS. Uh, yeah, whatever. He's well, done so much it. more than that, though. I mean, my God. He's, oh, he's, yeah. He is a like grandmaster. The, the go-to, is he, you know, everyone mm-hmm. will recognize. Is he officially recognized yes. as a, as a yes. grandmaster? I, but, I think so. Yeah. But grandmaster? The, uh, what? The um, Science Fiction Writers Association uh, observes oh. a grandmaster of SF every year, and I'm pretty sure he was one of them. Yeah, she's, she's yeah, going to look that up. I'm going to look that up. But, uh, yeah, yeah, world building, world building and creating the backstory for your, your universe. And obviously you had to do a great deal of that for nobility, you know, so that you had a world, a universe to live in so that everything made sense. Well, exactly. And there's certain rules that you live by, uh, you know, or like you create, you create rules and then if you are going to break them, you want to explain like why you're breaking them and why this is the exception, what have you, or, or just not break them at all. Um, and Doctor Who just doesn't seem to have any rules whatsoever. And they just, whatever they come up to, like why this works this time and not last time, they'll just come up with some techno babble or like starting with the, with the uh, uh, end of 10, beginning of, of, of 11, uh, they just say wibbly wobbly timey wimey, yeah. and it's like as if to apply it's just so complex you're not going to understand it. And they use that to break every single rule ever they've ever created, and that's the only show I have ever seen that work because normally it just totally shatters the believability of the universe. That's an excellent point, and I hadn't really considered that uh, before now. But I think you're right. They 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 say, okay, you just have to take this as written. This is really a fantasy. It's internally consistent, but it doesn't have to make any sense from a scientific standpoint. Well, I don't even think it, it, well. What my point is with Doctor Who, it's it's not internally consistent. Uh, and, and the only reason that works is because. 
they are able to say this is so complex. You know, like Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And they're basically just saying this is so complex, you're not going to understand it. Just accept it. And that's the only time I've I've seen that work. Um, But I think you started to get into something interesting. You started to kind of talk about um, or, or you implied the separation between science fiction and fantasy. Well, yes. Um, science fiction. Well, fantasy uh, only has to make internal sense. Um, it has it has its own rules and it it has to agree with itself. It's like a mystery novel, you know, in that respect. Uh, science fiction, it has to have some foundation, science. some actual oh. science in it. Uh, and even there, the amount of adherence one has to the holy grail of being scientifically accurate uh, depends on how much you wish to be constrained by this adherence. Well, some constraint is uh, considered by some people a source of creativity. You know, where can you can say anything you want in in a, 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 a strict poetry form. Mm-hmm. And yeah, still true. be be part of that strict poetry for me. And can, sometimes the you ex- can have any any uh, story you want in a in you know real scientifically accurate universe. Of course, those goalposts keep moving. <laughs> Ew, Every time NASA sends up another probe, we <laughs> have to. Well, we don't have to throw out our books, but we kind of have to mark them up, saying this was like we know. sent a probe to Enceladus, and we figured out that it's got this massive ocean under the crust. And we Which can Saladus. T- That's one of Saturn's one of the moons of Saturn. And uh, as I recall, it's got the reason we know this is because it's got um, surfboards. No, not surfboards. Surfer dude is going like, "Hey, dude, like, let's catch some light." But it does have, uh, but it does have geysers of steam coming from its bottom pole. It's farting. <laughs> In space, space farts, and you'd, you'd think that this would be better around the planet Uranus, but it's oh, not. No. <laughs> well, that's what's heading towards. It's, it's pointing towards. You know that talk we had earlier about being safe for kids and safe for work. We have to have that talk again. We, we are using. Either you can look at it one way and say we're using a proper name for a planet. You can look at it another way and say we're using the proper term for a piece of human anatomy. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this gets back to what what Susan's point was, which is that the science is moving so fast that it is really, really hard to keep up. Yeah, you can't go back and read, you know... uh, uh, Science fiction from the 1950s about, you know, colonies on Mars or Venus, because it's just not the way we thought it was. At the you know, time. All, yeah, all of the Martian them. Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah, that's all kind of All of the out. basic science is just wrong. It was just wrong. I mean, it's not just a little bit wrong either. Wildly wrong. But see, that that's some of the, part of the beauty of science is that we... As we get more data, we revise Mm -hmm. and we learn and we grow and we become more. And that's one of the things that attracts me to that worldview is that, okay, I'm not 100% sure of really anything, but I'm always learning more and I'm always refining my 
view of the world. I'm always growing. And to a point that works until you start getting into quantum mechanics. And now all of a sudden it's quantum mechanics is so wild and so weird that even most uh, nuclear physicists don't fully understand it. And how are we supposed to write science fiction about it? I mean, it, like, well, for, well, we don't, we don't do that. No, no, actually yet. we do. Cause, cause <clears throat> and one of the beauties of those kind of like open ended cutting edge areas of science is it can be whatever we want. So we can have so much fun just, Oh, you know, we say this and okay. Or, or like, um, uh, in nobility, the way, uh, <laughs> we, we haven't gotten into this on the show. Like, and and what's out there but like if you look at the series bible i do go into a lot of the tech mm-hmm. and one of the things on how like they have interstellar communication is uh we'll call it the q teller quantum telecommunication where you know how you can quantum entangle one particle with another and no matter the distance between them mm-hmm. one you know one vibrates the other will vibrate right right a, a change to one um if if two particles are described uh, precisely by the same precise set of parameters, they are effectively one particle. And for some right. reason that nobody understands, when you change one particle, you change the other, no matter how broad the distance is between them. I have a question about that, though. Um, we have uh, Recently, we as humans, uh, uh, as a species, have recently detected gravity waves. Yes. And what we found out is that gravity waves apparently move no faster than the speed of light. Dun, dun, dun. That ruins a lot of people's uh, (laughs) science fiction in one swell foop. Yeah. A lot of very well-paid people. Yeah, trying to use gravity. Well, because I was just reading uh, some of the Honor Harrington books by uh, David Weber, and they had uh, therein the the gravity waves were were not were faster than light, or or effectively instantaneous over interplanetary distances. And they were able to use it for communications. Well, that just got shot yeah. down. It dun, is, dun, yeah. Dun. Gra- gravity waves, if gravity waves are limited by the speed of light, is there a limit to quantum entanglement interactions? Well, we'll just have to send we one of us know. out far enough for, for us to be able to check that. Yeah, we, have- we have. We, we sent, uh, I think, the Chinese... Uh, sent one particle into orbit and another particle was down here on earth and i don't th- i think it was instantaneous from what they were able to tell well yeah but you're also talking about um you know we have to reproduce that some th- some results tiny yeah, like like a a light millisecond <laughs> or or less well if, they, if were they, they can, even checking for that how, how do we if, if, well, send if it they to the can moon calculate the the like amount of muons that get spewed out by the large hedron collider. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they they have sensitive equipment to detect, you know, even at that distance, a delay. Hmm. That that would be an interesting question because if if quantum entanglement suffers from the same 
uh, speed limit as gravity waves, which I did not expect. Uh, boy, this could play merry hell with with uh, our our view of the universe and, and and how everything is supposed to work. Things could be very wildly different than we think. But I think that's where we come into where I disagree with you on your definition of what sci-fi is. Um, I would say that sci-fi does need to be in uh, the, the, that the main thing for sci-fi is just the same as what you set forth for fantasy that it has to be internally consistent and merely use the language of science to explain it as opposed to the language of magic and mysticism. And that's the chief dividing point is the language of science versus the language of, of uh, mysticism, something at least within the universe we can understand through logic and science. Now, if you want to talk about hard versus soft sci-fi, I think that's where your definition comes in, where you're describing more hard sci-fi, mm-hmm. and the more scientifically accurate it is, or at least for our understanding at the time it is written, the harder sci-fi it is. Mm-hmm. Well, say, it can be very hard sci-fi when it's written, but as time goes on and we find out that you know what our learned JPL friends knew thought at the time doesn't turn out to be the case, well, yeah, the if friend, it's well, good writing, uh, it'll hold up as a book. If it's not such good writing and it uh, just just depended all on, on the rivets and the hardness of the science, it's going to sink. Well, yeah. <laughs> sink into obscurity. Well, like, I'll, I'll still say... Um, um, uh, what's it called? Um, the Martian like, Chronicle. I'll say some Asimov, stu- uh, Asimov, and and uh, uh, stu- uh, blah. Some of Asimov stuff is still hard sci-fi, even though you know the year I was born in eighty-seven, we weren't already having intelligent robots. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you you notice that we don't hear too much about the works of Frederick Paulson anymore. Paul. Paul. Sorry. Frederick Pohl. Who else was Which I is too of? bad because there's a lot of – he had a lot of good sociological science fiction going on too. But, you know, the Heechee stuff, I, I think they'd have to – if they were ever going to film those, they'd have to come up with a uh, – I don't know, uh, some of your quantum entanglement uh, situations to have the gates, you know, the gates actually work. <laughs> I, I'm actually not familiar with Paulson's stuff. Um, I, I, Frederick, so I Frederick Pohl. I, I misspoke. It's Frederick Pohl. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with P-O-H-L. it. P-O-H-L. Yeah, I'm not familiar mm. with his Oh, material. he passed away a few years ago, but another one of the Grandmaster types. Mm. Yeah, he was He was in the same class as Arthur C. Clarke and, and Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. And, and then you'd have people like Frederick Pohl and Roger Zelazny and... And uh, and writers like that. The poll was writing up to the end too. I mean, he had a very long career. Anyway, look him up. Anyway, That's your homework assignment. Yeah. I shall have to. All right. Anyway, um, no, I I take your meaning. Um, it's it's. Uh, I believe it was probably easier to do hard science sci-fi when there was less of it. When there was less of it to know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, when, when there was less well, when, of it. Well, when there was less, yeah, when there was le- when science was a little 
more um, available to the common man. Yeah, and well, you can get by on what everybody knows. Okay, there's nine planets. <laughs> Eight. Shush you. <laughs> yeah. No, Pluto, Pluto got a downgrade. Pluto is Pluto a planet? A planet? Is pl- it is a dwarf planet. It's a dwarf planet. Now, I'm, I could I could give you my rant on planet categorizations. I think that the rock balls like Earth and Pluto should be one category and the gas giants should be a different one. But that's... Another well, rant, and then there's another. Uh, there, there's gas planets and rocky planets. Yeah, but they all call them planets. He's saying, and there's another because um, they wander. Dwarf planet called Sedna. Which that is, is way out there, though. Yeah, it's way, way out. We there. haven't even gotten a good image of it yet. We just mostly know it by gravity. <laughs> of course, there's always Nibiru. I haven't heard of that's that. That's a. That's Where's... even further out. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, a conspiracy theory. Uh, I love like I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe the conspiracy theories, but I have so much fun listening to these people go on and on. And partially because it's fun to toy with intellectually, it's good source mm-hmm. material for for writing. Uh, and also, it's just like, do you even science people? <laughs> um, but um, Elvis Hero, is pumping it's gas like whenever they say Vegas. like, oh, there's a planet that's going to smash into us that we've never seen and. But the Aztecs knew about it, and it's in their, you know, calendar round, you know, round calendar or whatever. Uh, Nibiru is the planet; is the name of the planet. Oh, and just it? recently, they they've come up with like, like, like it was a couple months ago, and it was like, oh yeah, Monday we're all going to be dead, and a planet's going to smash into us. It's like, all right, please, okay. yeah, if if. <laughs> If it, were that, if it were close enough to hit us by Monday, We'd we notice. would we would already all be dead. We long would have this. Ago. We will, we'd also have seen something on the you know George Pal visuals from from when worlds <laughs> yeah. collide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, we would because uh, the gravity would be throwing our orbit out of place and all that. Oh yeah. yeah, it would have it would have such far-reaching effects on um, the well, e- ecosphere and the geology of our planet. And we would be uh, we would be having endless earthquakes that just would never stop. Yeah, well, and all sorts of other disruptions out on the edge of California like this. Yeah, we'd be. Yeah, nobody knows. We'd be treading water. <laughs> I am so like. Getting off this continent because we've got <laughs> you've got the fault line on on one side of the Rockies on the other side of the Rockies you've got uh, Yosemite that's going to explode. Yeah, well, the the funny thing about the fault line that runs uh, well, north north and south the San Andreas Fault that is not a thrust fault. Uh, the the edge of California is not going to sink into the ocean. That is a um, that's a, what's that's called somebody's a sh- wishful thinking. That's yeah, that that's is. called a shear fault. Yeah, which means the two. Yeah, which means in about uh, one hundred and fifty thousand years, Los Angeles will be next to San Francisco. Because that's really? the, yeah, because that's the direction it's moving. It's not well, sinking. It's moving sideways. We're surfing. Yeah, right. right. Surfing. I, I I understood that, but I thought that. L.A. and San Francisco are on the same plate, and, you know, 150, 200,000 years or whatever, we'd all be up by Alaska. 
Oh, no, no. It's um, Los Angeles is on one side and San Francisco is on the other. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I'm, I might I might have this, the uh, scale of magnitude. It might be 150 million years. <laughs> wow. No, sad. Yeah, 150 in 150 million years. Yeah, it's it's got to be. It depends on how many you know nukes we set off on the fault line, and and if Superman can reverse time. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> Don't get me started on that one. <laughs> Just the idea of Christopher Reeve uh, tunneling through the lava. <laughs> And, and saving California from sinking into the ocean, which it wouldn't have done in the first place. Thank you very much. Well, that's why it worked. Right. <laughs> that's why it, it wasn't worked. because of Superman. It's just like it's just Luther. bad. Oh, yeah, it's you just even science. Like, yeah, you come back to it's that. Just bad again. science, <laughs> dude. <laughs> it's great visuals, though. Oh yeah, especially for the era. My goodness, talking about tech advancing and science mm-hmm. advancing. You know, back then, that was really hard to shoot. Yes, it was. I mean, it's was no not CG, long yeah. past, you know, the original Star Wars. Um, very yeah. long. Yeah, for, and they still didn't have computer. 78 release. You they didn't did see significant CGI until much later. Um, uh, remember Star- one called The Last Starfighter? That was the first, yeah. the first film. Love that movie. Yeah, that was the first film in which computer graphics were presented as real, as real images. That was the first one that was where that was ever done. And let me just say, you know, if if anything, if anything needed the TOS treatment, (laughs) what they did with the visual effects for TOS. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but but it stands as a, a, it stands as a, um, you know, it's a landmark in... Mm -hmm. In, uh, in animation in, history. In animation history. Oh, and, yeah. and, and the, so, I knew. And at the time, it was amazing. Yeah. And I knew. Um, I uh, knew people who worked on it. Uh, you knew people who worked on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of people. It took a lot of, of uh, people to work on it. Yeah. I, I know oh, one of, I know one of the, sure. uh, the computer animators who worked on Last Starfighter. I knew, I knew some of the Cray people. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, the Attack of the Cray people. And they had dun, dun, to. Dun. Their their modeling system consisted of drawing the ship out on a giant piece of quadrille paper and writing down the intersections and then typing them into the computer by hand. Holy crap. That must have taken... Why are they not still at it? Yeah, exactly. Is that like what they did for the Death Star? Like like in Star Wars, the Death Star plans? No, that was... They had this pen and they pushed it in. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's it. That's how they digitized it? No, no. This was was much more primitive than that. Uh, And this was... um, uh, The the guy's name that I'm I'm thinking of is Bill Croyer. And he got his start working at, uh, I think it was Omnibus Effects... It was Omnibus, and they were, I think, and uh, they were working on, uh, they were working on producing that, that, uh, the Starfighter in The Last Starfighter. And uh, he said that one of the problems that they had was, um, well, for example, if you, and I'm going to get into a little bit of math here. If you take the 
three-dimensional coordinates. Of hold on, hold on. But right there, my brain just exploded. <laughs> okay, yeah, but there, there, yeah, but there will be listeners. Three-dimensional coordinates. I'm just there. There will be listeners who will understand this. If you take the coordinates of uh, three points and you take them in order, uh, and you uh, add together the squares of their distances from one another and then normalize them to one unit, you can tell which way that polygon is facing. And which polygon is facing? Yeah, the, the polygon that's that those three vertices I'm sorry, your you dog is going that? nuts there. Yeah. She heard another dog outside. Oh, I thought oh, she was pick, nitpicking your math. <laughs> no, she went, no, 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 you mathed. I'm out. <laughs> anyway, so, this sorry, is... everybody. That is my tiny little chihuahua who thinks she is a guard dog. Well, they <laughs> are. They're, they're mighty. So anyway, this is, this, is what's, maybe. this is what's called extracting the surface normal of a polygon. And by doing this, you can tell which way the polygon is facing. You know what the what the front side is and what the back side is. They didn't have this math when they were doing the last Starfighter, so they would be doing these rotations and animations with it, and they'd be spinning the ship the wrong way, Oops. and they wouldn't realize it because they all they could see was the wireframe because they didn't well, have you, they didn't have hidden just, line removal because they couldn't tell what what was front and what was back. Well, it looked okay Could when they saw it. Film? Did they just? Uh, yeah, there we go. You no, know, it looked fine when they saw it, and, and it wasn't until they rendered the thing out, which took like a week <sighs> to get a shot, that they saw that it was upside down and backwards. Hey, and, well, that, and, and see, today it'd be so easy <clears throat> to fix. You just oh well, invert. You know, now, <laughs> well, down. yeah, I mean you the know, from the here, whole here, you know, the whole idea of, of hidden surface removal. You know, oh, testing a polygon to see if we need to draw this or not. And they didn't have that. <laughs> they didn't have that math. Well, yeah. and that kind of goes back to what I was saying is, and, and you know, just clarify what I said earlier about, you know, giving it the Star Trek treatment and updating the graphics. Mm -hmm. All I meant was we've got, especially with the texturing, we've got much better tools. Oh, nowadays well, oh, we yes. have all these tools the artists back then for what they had did mm -hmm. an amazing job and that was not meant as it an was insult yeah well, it like was that. it was very so much working back then too and i don't even yelling at me it was very much <laughs> science it was very much oh. science and not very much art it's uh, it, it really it's took really a bunch of example of how science can create art oh yeah you know and how our science can lead to technology mm -hmm. that can create these amazingly beautiful things. Like, um, you know, uh, you know, Allie Reese, right? I think so. Okay. Well, she, she has a, a, a couple of computer programs and she, uh, that I don't know the name of, and she uses them to create these amazing nebula. And like any of the nebula you see in nobility or like, uh, Doug Drexler, who worked on Star Trek and oh, Battlestar yeah. Galactica, uh -huh. uses her nebulas all the time. And like a lot of the the novels, Star Trek novels, mm -hmm. are are her nebulas. And it's just again, and it's it's a series of equations. And she sets up certain parameters and says go, 
and it creates these these beautiful works of art that she creates. That's really astonishing. What's her name again? Allie Reese. Uh, you can look her up at uh, Kasperian Art. Okay. Uh, just just Google her and she'll come up. Uh, and uh, yeah, and um, uh, just look at uh, if you go to the the uh, Cowboy Errant website, that red nebula that's the background of our website um, is one of hers. And if you go to the Nobility website, the kind of blue nebula. Uh, she actually named that one for me. It's the EJ Nebula. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, so yeah. They're, but again, how science can lead and enable people to do these incredible things. Mm-hmm. But and even if you did, you're do welcome, it. Allie, for the plug. Thank you, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> but even sprucing up the uh, special effects, the last Starfighter Fighter's kind of worth it because of the actors. I mean. I can just imagine the, the the casting session of ooh we need we need a Robert Preston type <laughs> for Centauri and going and someone else probably said well, what's Robert Preston the real Robert Preston doing and it turned out he wasn't doing much <laughs> and this was his well, last picture that that happened with uh, I'm told that happened with uh, Battlestar Galactica where mm-hmm. they were like you know wouldn't it be great you know if we had an Eddie Olmos type you know or if we had a, a Oh, I'm blanking on her name. I'm so sorry. Who plays Rosalind? Laura Rot, the president. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on her name too. Like, uh, well, let's see what they're doing. Wolves is another thing she did. Don't make me do this. Okay. Anywho, both of them amazing, talented actors. Um, and they're like, well, what, you know, uh, and like they they wrote it with them in mind, like you know, as the uh, as the archetype. Mary McDonald. Uh, it just so happened that. They were both available and interested. <laughs> I I have mental casting when I'm when I'm writing sometimes, and oh, I've yeah. got no chance in hell of getting these people, but it would be great. Well, you know, when I started writing Nobility, it was the same situation, and I didn't necessarily get the exact people I had in mind, but I got some folks at that level, and some of the folks that I did have in mind, we were able to have conversations with. And reach wow. out to. Okay, well, so, that's cool. You never know. You never know, and and especially with you guys doing the show and and developing contacts with the and going to cons and all that, I'm sure you could you find some some decent folks for for stuff you're putting together. Oh sure, we we've met all kinds of glorious people that way. We oh yeah, we're very lucky to have Obishan Crosby with us. Uh, he's he's, oh, he's a, a hoot. He's a voice actor. He's a singer. He is a, a DJ with encyclopedic knowledge of motion picture and show tune music. Uh, and he's, he's one hell of a performer. Uh, he's been on um, uh, the Goldbergs. Is that the name of the show? That is the name of a show. Uh, yeah, he's been, he's been, he's been <laughs> on that a bunch of times. Yeah, he's been on that a bunch of times, playing himself. Oh really? Yeah, playing. Yeah, playing. What is it? One of the kids, Obi- a Star Obi-Wan, Wars fan or something? Uh, playing a, an Obi Wan cosplayer. I see. And he's been on that several times. It's weird. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> that's been meta, it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of meta. But yeah, we we do uh, we do run across a fair number of very talented people. 
Present company, except in, 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 included. included, of course. <laughs> uh, but present company accepted. What? Well, uh, no, uh, Nemo. I, Nemo I, doesn't, I, doesn't, I, doesn't I cook for him. The dog. The dog is asleep. Uh, Welcome to yeah, dog talk. <laughs> Welcome to dog talk on Krypton. Um, the the <laughs> possibilities that this opens up, you know, when you are when you work in general media um, and you do stories that are just meant for the mainstream, you don't have this kind of intense immersion that you have when you work in the science fiction or, or geek culture media. Well, you, you wouldn't think so, but there's people who will nitpick anything to death. And, and you know, if you get something wrong in the Goldbergs, you know, <laughs> you're going to hear about it. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the sci-fi people, uh, fans, are a lot more attentive and a lot more, um, yeah, they're, they're often highly intelligent and they're a lot more attentive than your average everyday fan. And that's actually one of the reasons why I like going to those smaller fan cons like, um, mm-hmm. like Moscon, like we were at um, back in the, uh, Thanksgiving. Um, and, you know, I, I know I joke around about, well, the fans, you know, were panelists, too. But that's the thing. The fans had the presence of mind and intelligence to be panelists as well. They, uh, you know, no, some of them could have been, pan- you know, I mean, sometimes yeah. the only difference between the panelists and the people in the audience is we signed up first. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have seen that before. I really have. Um uh, I remember uh, a few years back uh, at that same con, I was um, I had two panels with Straczynski. Wow! Uh, wow! Uh, who uh, for for the lay people out there, uh, JMS, uh, uh, the guy who created Babylon Five and and most recently Sensei and a bunch of other shows, um, and which for me was huge because I'm such a Babylon Five nerd. Um, I'm just a, I'm a fan of his writing. I mean, he's one of the finest modern pop media writers there is. I I call him one of the great monologists of our time. He has written some of the great monologues, not just in Babylon 5, but elsewhere. Well, yeah, he's got the, uh, and of course what's coming to mind is for me, uh, uh, Babylon 5, but like, like the season four finale where we're billions of years ahead and, and we look into billions of years of the future and he's talking, uh, or the character is talking, speaking back to, to you and me, really, back to, to all of his ancestors as Sol, our son, is dying and Earth, expo- you know, gets eaten up, uh, by, by Sol going supernova. And, uh, he's talking back to us, you know, well, we tried to create the world you wanted us, you know, but now it's ended. You know, and just, uh, of course, I'm not doing it justice right now, but uh, just some beautiful stuff. But what I was getting back to, getting back to what I was saying was um, some of the panelists there were just folks who saw he was going to be on the panel, saw there was empty, uh, open space, and just like, me too, sign up, <laughs> which is how I got on the panel, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, it's so to come back to your point where sometimes the audience, the difference between the audience and the panelists was, you know, someone got there first. And this is uh, 
we're hearing a lot of noise from your microphone. Sorry? How's that? Uh, that's better. Thanks. Okay. It, it's just the rustling. No touchy. That's, that's me being energetic and moving around and holding <laughs> the mic. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's kind of a strange mic situation. Um, I was going to say that uh, being on these panels... I mean, it's, you don't get this perspective when you're sitting in the audience, but being on the panels is a wonderful, uh, a pretty wonderful thing for, for us who sit on the panels as well, because we get to meet all these fascinating people, like sitting yes. on the same panel as John DeChancey. Oh my God. <laughs> you <laughs> he know? does know his stuff. He really does. And he, he he's a, a, of course, he's a brilliant writer and he's uh I think he's probably on his way to becoming a grandmaster himself. We'll see. And uh, you know, and you <laughs> getting to <laughs> getting to be on the same panel with you—that was a hoot. And oh, that was fun. Yeah, you, you and I work together well on panels and bounce off of each other well. Not everybody does, and and the the job of of putting panels together is one that I'm facing in the coming year, actually. <laughs> So well, you have to come up with simpatico people who aren't going to kill each other. Oh, hey, you know, uh, you could put EJ and I together on a panel. That would work. Oh, there you go. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to come fight. up with a topic then. Yeah. We'll How have are to... you on vampires? Me? Yeah, I actually the... had, was like thinking about, like, I, I, I'm normally not, I don't normally go to the supernatural, but I was just thinking about, like, I had two horror ideas, like, an hour before this panel started. Huh, it was funny. Uh-huh. Um, it, but yes, I am, I am fairly familiar with vampires. Isn't that just a big, a, a big bonfire where you burn old Chevy vans? Stop. Not a vampire. <laughs> King of the dumb dad jokes. <laughs> Hashtag dad joke. <laughs> All, all I can say is that they're sparkly. I'm calling Buffy. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah. Preserve us from sparkly vampires. I mean, Harry Potter was all about how to rise above adversity and to be accepting of people different than you. And the whole premise of Twilight was it's sad not to have an eternal boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you should kill well, yourself. Did you see George Takei's video? Like, uh, what was it? Uh, <laughs> the the, the star, uh, yeah, star, star Trek star. and Star Wars fans should should unite against the Twilight fans. Yeah, <laughs> the Star Coalition. Because we've got real threats out there, and it's just like a picture of Twilight, like some Twilight meme. Uh, or, or what was there's a, there was this meme going around back then. Where it's um, a bunch of oh, it's Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and it says, "Dear Twilight fans, thank you for making our fans look normal." <laughs> you could say that with you could caption many different pictures with that, you know. Yeah. Oh boy. But yeah, I never really understood why sci-fi fans. I mean, and it's changed in recent years, but you know, especially you know, eighties, nineties, you know early 2000s uh um you know i was growing up 90s early 2000s um you know it was it was like oh you're weird you you like that sci-fi stuff but honestly how 
how is it any different other than maybe the level of intellect above nerding out or, or, or different from nerding out about a sports team? It isn't at all. The way that sports teams, uh, you know, sports fans nerd, you know, memorize reams and and columns of of numbers uh, related to their their favorite players and all these statistics, oh, yeah. or, or learn statistics so that they can understand the ins and outs uh, of those numbers, you know. Well, and yeah, and it's just mind boggling. It, yep. makes, it does make the Star Star Trek fans look kind of normal. <laughs> they, it's okay. You can paint yourself blue and go shirtless to a baseball game, but God help you if you put on a pair of pointed ears. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you wore Seriously. You know, painted yourself blue and put on pointed ears at a Dodger game, I think it would be all right. Yeah, maybe I, it's maybe we should have pointy ears night at at the stadium. <laughs> I don't know. So, so what is this an an Andorian Vulcan hybrid now? There we go. <laughs> I don't want to be there for the for the conception. That would just be wrong. <laughs> the conception uh, that either be really wrong or well, this is uh, safe for work, so I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I think we're wandering all over the field at this point. That's half the fun. <laughs> so it's party time. So what you're working on right now? What's what's next for EJ? Ah, well, um, number of things that I have in the works. Uh, obviously, I'm still chipping away at nobility, and and I want to continue that storyline. Uh, I look at what we've done so far with that as really kind of our, our proof of concept and what we can do. Um, considering we shot that with such a small budget. Um, and so I'm right now we're looking towards, um, you know, moving forward with that and really expanding the story and, and what have you. Uh, I'm also working on a couple of things I can't talk about. I'm also working on, uh, I actually, uh, just not too long ago, uh, finished a script called, uh, uh, Anomaly, uh, with a friend of mine, um, Matthew D. Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're currently, uh, in the process of shopping that around and, and seeing where that can go. Um, uh, I wrote, uh, uh it's his company who did it. And then, uh, they brought me on to, uh, be the screenwriter on it, uh, or one of the screenwriters on it. And, um, and then actually, uh, speaking of Matt, um, I've been working with him to promote his debut novel, um, which it's, it's an amazing book that, um, I, I was really read because he kept teasing me about it forever. <laughs> like here, I'll, I'll let you read the first chapter. Okay. Okay. More, want more now. Come on. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> It's this fun, uh, it's this really interesting and, uh, p- uh, take on the post-apocalyptic genre where the, the basic premise being uh, a series of solar flares, uh, hits the earth and it creates all sorts of, uh, atmospheric issues and the power goes out except for, you know, the occasional generator that was off, you know, that, that emergency generator that people have, some mm-hmm. people have. And so most of the power is out and, 
Um, you've got you know hurricanes, floods, and earthquakes, and all this crazy stuff going on, and you're following this the uh, two groups of people, and as they go through and, and try to reunite, it's it's this family that was on opposite sides of the country, and as they try to reunite, you really have this interesting exploration of of humanity and. Yeah, it basically it come it boils down to yeah, there's a lot of horrible things that can happen. There's a lot of horrible people out there, but through it all, there's enough surprisingly decent people that redeems the rest of us. That's good. Yeah, and so yes, it's post-apocalyptic, but it has this this hopeful quality to it that you rarely see in this kind of genre. Um, and that I think is for me what made it something unique and special. Well, I'm looking so forward I'm to seeing. That sounds like a really, it sounds like a really positive statement for a book like that. And most po- most uh, post-apocalyptic stories are r- grim, grim at best. Yeah. So yeah. what's the well, name and, of this book? I'm not going to say that this is unrealistic, that there aren't those grim moments and those sad things that happen. But rather than being Walking Dead, every, you know, everyone sucks and, and everyone's just going to die, 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 die. Um, it's, it's, you know what, maybe, maybe not only some of us will survive, but maybe some of us will be worthy of survival. And the title of this book is? Solar Reboot. Hmm. Good title. Yeah, I like that. It's not ta- it's tantalizing. Well, it's it's, tantalizing. it's easy words of of two syllables and not ones that usually go together. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you it's know. it's well. How do you craft a good title? That's those are the criteria. You know, short, punchy, and makes you ask a question. Yeah, I, I whenever I'm I'm coming up with a title, I just sit there and go, "What makes me go ooh?" You know, it gives me that tingly sensation. Sometimes it takes uh, till you know three in the morning, but they'll it'll come, it'll come, it'll come one day. <laughs> but no, yeah, Solar Reboot is is the name of of uh, and written by Matthew D. Hunt, and just an amazing um, story that you're going to want to check out. Well, hook us up. We've got to talk to him. I think I think that can be arranged. Okay, good. Awesome. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking for the last hour to producer and filmmaker and writer E.J. De La Pena. We're very glad that you were able to stop by. We had a lot of fun. Of course, you're welcome to come back anytime. You know, I'd, I'd love to come back. I always have fun with you guys. Uh, and we always have... Not just fun, but very you know meaningful intellectual conversations, which is always amazing. It's refreshing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. You have been listening to episode 186 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for December 9th, 2017, with special guest E.G. de la Pena, the producer, writer, and director of Nobility the Series, now available on Amazon Prime. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again tomorrow, Sunday, December 10th, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, 
and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website as a podcast. That would be at kryptonradio.com. We are completely listener-supported. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Event Horizon, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and kick in a couple of bucks a month. It will help keep your favorite radio station and shows just like this one on the air and thriving. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program was copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>